Turning now for our worship, for our praise, for our meditation, for our instruction in righteousness to the book of Revelation and the 14th chapter. This evening in our week-by-week consecutive ministry through God's Word, on a Tuesday evening at our midweek service, we arrive this evening at the verse 14 of Revelation chapter 14. Reading in your hearing, verses 14 to the verse 20. Revelation 14, 14 to 20. This is the word of the Lord. Let us come and hear the word of Almighty God. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle, and another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord be pleased to bless the public reading of his precious word. Let us pray. Your congregation, I would ask you to please turn your prayerful attention to those words that were read to you in your hearing. There in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, we arrive in the verse 14 this evening and through to the end. We'll consider these verses in our studies. We come now to the third message in this chapter. As we arrive in chapter 14, Verse 14, we are coming now to the close of the fourth cycle that we saw begin in chapter 12. Each of the seven cycles in the book of the Revelation we've seen so far ends with judgment, judgment day, and with the saints glorified in heaven. And here we're seeing it from a different angle. We saw how in the chapter 11 how the ungodly were angry with God, and how they saw the elect taken up to heaven, how they even saw that all that were in the dust, as we read in the book of Daniel as well, rose from the dust. There is a general resurrection, both of the just and the unjust, unto everlasting life for some, and unto eternal destruction and everlasting punishment for the others. If you just turn with me there in chapter 
11. Notice in the verse 11, we saw this at the close of the last cycle, the third cycle, the resurrection of the dead. And uh, while you're turning there, let me say the book of the Revelation is not constraining us to believe that there are uh, seven judgment days or seven resurrections. No, it's telling us the same thing over and over again, trying to emphasize the same point, that everything that is taking place in this world is coming to one great climactic event. That is the judgment of all men and God's appearing before them, men appearing before God and an eternal state. It will be a terrible state for some, for many. Remember how the one said, shall there be many that be saved? And the Lord Jesus said, strive to enter in. In answer, the question directly, but later he said, there is a narrow way, he said. And few enter in by that way. But many are on the broad road to destruction. For they have gone through a broad gate of easy religion. And here we're not about easy religion, are we? We are truly about the narrow way. And Jesus Christ is that narrow way that leads to life. And uh, just by introduction this evening, as we think on these things, and as we're going to look at some verses now in Revelation 11, salvation really procures something in the life. Godliness, holiness. And only if that is true, and we have seen a number of times in the book of the Revelation, they that keep the commandments of God, they and they alone have the right to enter into the city. And Satan is particularly wroth with those, as we read in chapter 12, that keep the commandments of God. He is angry with them because they are the true saints, not simply those that name the name of Christ. Now, as I said, if you just look there in Revelation 11, we see the close of the third cycle. And let's just see again how it is the close of this third cycle, the resurrection of the dead. But verse 11 of chapter 11. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. Again, the, this gospel age can be described either by three and a half years or three and a half days, or 1260 days, or 42 months. These are synonymous terms used, symbolic language used to describe the entire gospel age. So throughout the gospel age, those that have lived after, and of course the Lord Jesus has ascended up, the gospel age is from the time of his ascension until his second coming. And so after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. We told this in Romans chapter 9, or Romans chapter 8, rather. The same spirit that quickened us shall raise our mortal bodies, Paul says. And notice, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. So that's the unjust. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies beheld them. In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. 
or the power of it. We know what ten symbolizes, doesn't it? Something given. We have ten fingers. There are ten commandments. It's something given. Power was taken away from the city of men, from Babylon, the world. It's taken away from men. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. You come down to the verse 18, and the nations were angry. And thy wrath is come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged. And thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and so on. You see, this is judgment day. That was the close of the third cycle. God has come to destroy the earth. We read there at the verse 18 at the end. Now, chapter 12 began the fourth cycle. And now we're coming to the close of that fourth cycle in these verses. And really, this is the picture of harvest. As we saw just a few weeks ago in our evening gospel sermon, it is the harvest of the wheat and the tares. Remember how they should grow up together until the coming of Christ. We're told that the field is the world, Matthew 13. You may wish to just turn back there with me. And you'll see this is the same, this is the picture. This is really speaking on what the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of in Matthew thirteen thirty-six. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. Now the reason I've read this is that we will see God is not responsible for sin in this world. Satan was the very first person to sin. Where did he sin, first of all? In heaven. And following him was a great train of some third part of the angels that fell. And then he brought sin into this world, didn't he? Into the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve weren't the first people to sin. Satan brought sin in. And we want to consider this whole subject of sin here tonight. And why God must judge sin. God cannot be the author of sin, because if he was, he couldn't judge it. God will judge sin. Men are responsible for their sin. They're accountable for their sin. Satan, who brought sin into the world, has tempted sinners. And sinners sin volitionally, of their own will. Now, God did make Adam and Eve with a free will. And men still have a will. But if we properly understand it, that will is not free, really. It's bound to a fallen, depraved nature. And yet men are still responsible for their sins. And God, therefore, cannot be charged with sin. And God must judge sin. Who are these people? Well, we've seen them. Those who God will judge are those who have the mark of the beast. And we know who the beast is. The beast is the world coming out of the abyss of the ocean. It's a symbolic picture, isn't it? 
The sea, the waters, pictures people. We know from Daniel chapter 7 that the sea represents the nations and the people of the nations and how people follow in culture, in time. People are born sinners. and They follow in the way of sin, the ways of sin in this world. They love the world. They had the mark of the beast on their foreheads. Not a literal mark, not something you can see, but you can see it by the way they think. Just like the Jew would have, I mean, just the simple, should we say, illustration of the phylactery on his head. That leather box with the law contained. They weren't literally meant to have it upon their head. It was meant to be upon their thoughts. And upon their arms, so that what they thought, what they did, should have been to the glory of God. Now, of course, God has written his law upon the fabric of every person that has ever lived in this world. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. Adam and Eve, Romans 2, 14 and 15, had the law of God written upon their hearts. But they decided to go it alone, to sin, volitionate. Of their own will, they sinned. And even men, even though they've fallen, that same law is now upon hearts of stone, hearts that will not change. And yet men have the mark. They want the world. They, they live in this world, 666, without God the Father, without God the Son, without God the Holy Spirit. They live without a knowledge and an apprehension and an obedience to the thrice holy triune God. That's how men live. These men that have the mark of the beast, which is also called, notice there in Revelation 17, uh, Revelation 13, 17, these people, it's the number of man. The number of the beast is the number of man. That's man without God. What is the number? 600, three score and six, 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 six. It's man Without God, isn't it? Man living apart from God. No acknowledgement to God. No obedience to God. No obedience to his commandments. This is why those that enter into the city are those that acknowledge God and keep his commandments. Should be clear to us. And uh, if we have no desire to keep God's commandments, that means we don't love him. If we're finding we're putting our will before God's, that means we don't love him. Of course, the Christian won't do it perfectly, but he's going to strive to do it. And when he doesn't do it, he's grieved in his heart and he repents. He doesn't excuse his sin. He has a real liberty in Christ, and yet he does not use that liberty to occasion the flesh. That's what Paul says to the Galatians. He doesn't use grace to sin. Remember what Paul says in Romans 6, Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How can we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How can we? We're a new person now. God has given us a new heart. So we don't say, oh well, other Christians sin, I'll sin. It's okay, God will forgive me. That is not the spirit of a Christian. Those that are judged have the mark of the beast, and there will be many, many, that say, I understood the gospel, I knew the word of God, but really they had the mark of the beast upon them. 
They live for this world. They thought for this world. It's the number of man, man living for himself. But you see, whoever's in Christ is a new creature. And we want to please God, not ourselves. And we do what he says. Remember what the Lord Jesus said, ye shall know them by their fruits. You want to know whether you have the mark of the beast? Look at the fruits of your life. Is there a desire to please God? He said, a a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, and so on. You know the text. The elect have the mark. It's the mark of righteousness. He said, you will know them by their fruit. So we have a picture here in Revelation 14, verse 14 through to the end. It's the picture of the harvest where the Lord brings all of the wheat into the Lord's garner. Matthew 3, verse 12. He will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And there will be many say, Lord, Lord, open unto us. We did this in thy name, that in thy name. But he will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Now what we see in this last section of this fourth cycle is God's judgment upon mankind. We will consider the the clusters of grapes, and then we'll consider the individual grapes. God deals with groups of men as well as man singularly. People will be judged for their sins done collectively. But you know, often people will say, oh, well, somebody encouraged me on in this way, and it was a way of sin. Yes, but everybody is responsible We might belong to a cluster of people, but we're an individual grape, as it were. We're individuals, and we see this in this chapter, and I hope to develop that later on this evening with the imagery that is given to us in the verses that follow. But first of all, notice with me the harvest of the wheat pictured in verses 14 to the verse 16. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud sat one like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. He that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, one thing we mustn't imagine here is that there is a long period between the two harvests. It's judgment day, isn't it? We've already read how men will come out of the dust, how they will rise. We know from John chapter 5, in verse 28, if you just turn there with me, John 5, 28, we mustn't assume that there are two resurrections, as it were. There are two harvests here because... There's a dividing, the sheep and the goats. But in John 5:28, the Lord Jesus said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Now notice, all that are in the graves, everyone, 
Everybody is going to come out suddenly. There's going to be a general resurrection. And shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. We have it in Luke. How one, those that are living, in fact, two should be grinding at the mill. One taken, the other left. Two lying in the bed. It's just a picture of the dividing. Now, the next thing we need to see, having made that first point, that this happens at the same day, the same hour, the same time, marvel not. Second thing is, notice the imagery of the white cloud. And most would suggest, and I believe this to be true, it pictures Christ's coming in holiness and purity. We think of a white cloud. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. So it pictures holiness, it pictures glory. We think of clouds. It's, it's imagery. A white cloud. And upon the head, a golden crown that pictures glory, purity, glory, but also a sharp sickle. It's going to be sudden. This first harvest is not one of judgment, but a quick covering, cutting, a quick severing. The, the sharp sickle really means there's going to be a sudden, sharp taking away, a taking away of his people. And that's a good thing, isn't it? For us who are the Lord's, he's going to suddenly, at the twinkling of an eye, change us and take us up into glory. In Matthew 25, verse 29, we have these words. The Lord Jesus speaking, he says, For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even what he which he hath, he seems to have this person. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now notice verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory. That's why I said this cloud pictures glory. And all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations. So it's going to be a day of sudden change. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. So this is the dividing. It's on the same day and the same time. And again, this golden crown, it pictures his royal kingship, his authority. To judge. Remember what he said, all authority, power has been given unto me. Then he will come as the judge of all the earth. And every eye will see him. He has authority over all men. And notice something else here, the sharp sickle. Well, as I said, it's to gather in his wheat. A quick cutting, severing. Now, what is this first harvest? Well, it's his reward. Let me show you. Revelation 22. What does he say there in verse 12? Then behold, 
I come quickly or suddenly. That's the word. And my reward is with me. The wheat harvest is his reward. And you say, in what sense is the wheat his reward? Well, in every sense, they are wheat because of him. Because of his spirit that lived and abided in them. His spirit that quickened them. His work at Calvary. To bring them to God. To do a work in their life here now. So at the coming, it's his reward to garner in all the wheat for the glory of God. And John says, we shall see him and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That is his reward, his sufferings, to bring many sons into glory, as we read in Hebrews. Here am I and all the children that thou hast given me. He is that wheat, as we thought that of corn in the ground that died, that he would not abide alone. And think of the Spirit of Christ at work in your life, in your heart now as a believer. That will be his reward, to see you glorified. Remember what he said, and I will be glorified in them, we read in John 17. He will be glorified in them. And he is glorified in us. We read there Revelation twenty two twelve, And behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. So all the changes that have ever taken place and finally that great change of glory will be glory to Jesus Christ in that day. None of us will ever boast and have anything to boast on. We will say, I am what I am by the grace of God. As we say now, I am what I am by the grace of God. What does Paul say in Philippians? He says, he that has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1 verse 5 and 6. Paul says, being confident of this very thing. That's his reward. He will not fail. What a glorious harvest that will be. When he stands with all of his people. Before the Father, here am I, and all the children that thou hast given me. His reward is with him. And anything we did in this life is really his reward, isn't it? He procured it in us. It was his spirit that worked in our hearts. The grace of God came to us. So that we did walk in his commandments, not perfectly. There was a desire, an increasing desire, and then finally when we reach glory, that will be realized in a perfect way, and we'll never sin again. What a glorious day that will be. My reward is with me. To restore that which he did not take away, as we read in the Psalms. I restore that which I took not away. What did Christ procure? And what is he procuring now by the grace of God? Well, we're told, Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity or sin and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. That's why the grace of God came to us. You see, the one that is truly saved and that is wheat doesn't say, oh, I have grace and there's no change in the life. What does the grace of God procure in us? What does it work in us? Teaching us to deny ungodliness in this present world. Teaching us to deny sin in our own hearts and living before men and then looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing. You know, it's precisely those that look inwardly and really don't want to offend God are the ones that long for his appearing most of all. Because they can't wait till the battle with sin is over. And they can't wait for the day that they'll never displease him again. There are many that plead they have the grace of God, but there's no battle And we don't make excuses for sin. The careless sinner, he says, ah, well, sin, big deal. Everybody sins. That's not a Christian. He never makes excuses for his sin or her sin. And say, well, they try and do one good thing one day so it excuses them the next time they do something wrong. They can say, well, you see, I've done some good. Therefore, I'm excused in my sin. No. He hates offending God. That's his disposition. Now, the sharp sickle here to gather in the reward of Christ. What a day that will be when he does so. Now, the second reaping. It's the reaping of the unjust. Notice with me. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire. Now, this speaks of torment. Fire speaks of anguish. It speaks of pain. We read of the everlasting fire. This was fire. Remember, it's a symbol, isn't it? If only hell and destruction were annihilation. If only it could burn to ashes and to cinder, but it doesn't. Let me say the symbol is always less than the reality. It's everlasting torment in the presence of God and his holy angels. That's what hell will be. And crowd cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle saying, thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth. So there's a picture there. A number of commentators speak about the clusters of the vine. Men, I suppose, live in groups as well. And here, the fruit of the earth, the fruit of men. And then, for her grapes are fully ripe. I suppose you could look at the world and society and different people all over the world. One thing it's marked by is sin, isn't it? Clusters of it. And then individual sin, the grapes are fully ripe. Just like in the days when the Lord spoke to Abraham and said that the iniquity of the Amorites had not yet reached its height 
but it would do. But now the time has come. In other words, it's ripe for judgment. I suppose men are taken, snatched out of this world. At their time, the Lord takes them. But there is a day when he is coming where he will judge the whole world. Of course, where do unbelieving and unrepentant men go when they die? They go to a place immediately for judgment. And then finally the judgment day. And they're being reserved in that place. Now again, God here is going to judge the iniquity. Notice the grapes are fully ripe. Her grapes, that's the fruit of unrighteousness. It's a picture. What did this world yield? What did the people of this world yield? Fruits of unrighteousness. Disobedience, sin. God is going to come and judge sin. Not simply because people are not elect, but he's going to deal with sin. Now, you see, when you compare the harvest of Christ, the wheat, what does the wheat deserve? Wrath, really. We all by nature, Paul tells us, are children of wrath. But Christ bore the sin of the wheat, didn't he? He bore the sin of his people, and he imputes his righteousness to them. But his reward is what he has done in them and for him, for them. That's his reward. But most men get what they most assuredly deserve. That is God's judgment for their sins. Now again, God must judge sin. Because sin is transgression of the law. Now, again, God is not the author of sin. He cannot be. Or he could not judge sin. So I said, God made the earth, made everything, it was good. He made heaven, everything was good there. But one decided to rebel. It was free voluntary disobedience to God. Same as Adam and Eve. They were made upright. Made posse picare, non posse picare. Able to sin, able not to sin. Made with a free will. And yet they chose to sin. God decreed it. But that does not make him responsible for it. He allowed for it. He permitted for it in his decree. James says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And I ask you the question, because I must ask myself the question. Every time we're tempted to sin, what is it? Who's responsible? Do we blame other people? We can't blame other people. We can't blame God. We do it voluntarily. God didn't make robots. He made people with a will, with a mind, with affections. And we love our sin, sadly. Not anymore, though, as Christians. We hate it, especially when we sin. We see how egregious it is to God. It's a terrible thing. People sin willingly, individually. 
just as clusters here. People grow up in a society and they know it's wrong to do certain things. Various clusters of society throughout the world. You go to the most distant tribe and ask, is it, is it wrong to murder? Is it wrong to covet? Is it wrong to commit adultery? They say yes, but they do it. Why? Because sin is spread to all men. Because we come from Adam. We were born shapen in iniquity. People sin willingly, individually. And I often find this. People who try to blame God for sin and say that he is responsible for it, excuse themselves when they sin. You ever found that? It's, it's a very clever excuse, isn't it, for sinning? Oh, well, I'm not responsible for it ultimately. God is, but he's not. Our confession, paragraph th- uh, 3, chapter 3, paragraph 1, rather. God has decreed in himself from all eternity by his most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably all things, whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. In other words, God doesn't violate a man's will. Does God coerce you to sin? Does he tempt? No, can't be. Nor yet is there liberty or contingency of the second causes taken away, but rather established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Now, men are moral agents, aren't they? We're all moral agents. We know moral right from wrong. And you consider even this. It was by the sin of wicked men that they put the Lord Jesus Christ to death. But that was for the salvation of God's people. God even worked the evil of men for the salvation of souls. So in his wisdom, in his power, he determined to save. And you see, even the wrath of man shall praise God. How unsearchable is his wisdom and his ways beyond us. It's the full, I mean the utter full, that judges God carelessly. You know, David, when he sinned, and he knew it was wrong, he said this, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. When David committed his sin, he knew it was wrong. When he tried to get Uriah drunk, when he committed the terrible fornication with his wife, he knew it was wrong. And he knew God was justified. Yet he did it. Terrible, isn't it? He knew God was justified when he was judged. He didn't complain, he didn't make excuses. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan, said, If by the author of sin is meant to be God, the, the author of sin, God does not sin, he says. 
nor is he the agent or the actor of sin or the doer of a wicked thing. It would be a reproach and blasphemy to suppose God be the author of sin in this sense. I utterly deny God to be the author of sin. And he quotes 1 John 1.5. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But think of it, even how he decreed that Pharaoh should oppose him. And Pharaoh did oppose him. By nature, he had a hard heart, didn't he? And he would reject God. He, in fact, warned Moses that Pharaoh would not hear. And yet he permitted all of that for his glory. There was no constraint upon Pharaoh. God was not coercing Pharaoh to sin. In fact, the more light he showed Pharaoh, the more he opposed it. And it's true in this world. The more light you show people, the more they oppose it. Until God changes the heart, the will, and the affections. It's not the light. But Jesus said men will not come to the light because they love darkness. That's their heart. Jonathan Edwards gives this tremendous illustration. He uses the analogy of the way of the sun that brings about light and warmth by its essential nature. But it brings, think of it, light by its nature brings about darkness, doesn't it? Just by the very nature of itself. And, and you think of it, the law. Without the law, there would be no sin in the sense is that you cannot define sin apart from the law. But it's that which man opposes. And God is the law. Because it enunciates what is good. And the law must enunciate justice. And here's the thing. Men still, even when they hear the gospel... They despise the gospel report. That's right. Isaiah says, and who hath believed our report? He means the gospel report. And to whom, he says, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Two things he speaks about there. The report, who's believed it, who's received it, who's accepted. Man by nature won't. When the Lord truly reveals himself, a man for what he is, and changes the heart of a man, man by the grace of God is caused to bow the knee and to acknowledge that he's a hell-deserving sinner. Job thought he knew a lot of things. Eventually he said, I must, as it were, hold my mouth lest I speak any evil against God. God cannot be charged with evil. God must judge sin here because sin is against him. And if he is the author of it, he would be unjust to judge it. It's a solemn thing, isn't it? Now, 
as we close, notice the judgment. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Gathered the vine of the earth. Think of it, men living in this world, sucking and draining, draining, draining from this earth, never giving glory to God, seeing, living in open light and acknowledgement that there is a God in heaven. The heavens and the earth declare the glory of God. Day unto day utter a speech, night unto night knowledge. was brought to think of the parable of the vine dresses. How the tenders didn't give God their due. And that's how men are. They don't give God their due in this world. But eventually God comes and he puts those of the vine of the earth into the winepress of God of his wrath, and the wine press was trodden without the city. That's outside of the presence of God's people, the holy city. It's a picture of judgment. And blood came out of the wine press, even unto the horse bridles, that's to the neck or to the head, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs, that's two hundred miles. That's a long way. Of course, it's figures of language. But you see, it's measured judgment as well. There are going to be degrees of punishment in hell. The Lord Jesus spoke of the greater sin, of which Judas was responsible for, who handed him over to Pontius Pilate. Men are given degrees of light and knowledge, and God is just and he, he will execute justly because sin is odious to him. It is an offense to him. But those who are Christ's can never complain in this life, though we may suffer. Because we consider this, one suffered far more for us the unspeakable wrath of God's wrath poured out upon him so that the heavens were darkened. There was darkness all over the earth for three hours when the Son of God was not being spared but was bearing damnation for his people, was suffering the just for the unjust, that he would bring us unto God. Do you see the justice of God there at Calvary? And Christ's reward is to bring us to glory. That was his mercy. And dying for us at Calvary. And we by nature never would have believed the gospel report. But the grace of God came to us and changed our hearts showed us our depravity. In fact, God shone, just as he, he shone light at the beginning of the world and said, 
let there be light, and there was light. It was a day when we were taken out of darkness and brought into his marvelous light, brought to love and adore the God of justice and the God of grace. My friends, that is who he is, the God of justice. But thank God he is also the God of grace. He punished our sin in Christ. He had to. All we had aborted for all eternity. His reward is with him. Let me say this, it's amazing to give every man according to his works. What's our reward? We say, Lord, what, what is my reward? I've done nothing, really. Thou hast done all. Thou hast worked thy word in my heart. He says, this is your reward. Believe on me. Continue. Obey my commandments. Prove that you are the wheat. You're not the tares. Don't love this world. Neither the things of this world. You have the mark of your father. Because that's what he said. Those who are the elect have the mark of the father. They don't have the mark of the world. Love not the world. Neither the things of the world. But love Christ with all your heart, friends. Amen.